The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we have our first returning guest, the doctor himself, Dr. Matt Moore. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. My name is Matthew. I work at a company called Benavia Manufacturing, uh, working on the uh, process development of cannabinoids and entheogens and taking them through through clinical trials. Cool. And we're excited to dive into a new topic. Uh, For those who listened back in February, we teased out one of our most popular episodes, Delta 8. And today we are returning to discuss the newly popular, is that that a fair way to describe it? Delta 10. Probably. So Delta 10 has an interesting story. It definitely is referenced as far back as 1963-64 in a Japanese convention on psychedelics. They don't have a synthetic route that they describe or anything like that, but it's been referenced there. There's also references to it in 1982 with Machulam, and there's conflicting stories about whether or not it's psychoactive. So let's let's before we dive into that, like let's let's give the listeners like a little more of just like an understanding, right? Like from like a simple, simple standpoint. So D10, Delta 10 is one of many, many forms of tetrahydrocannabinol. Tetrahydrocannabinol is a very I, I brought up its name so I could say it in entirety. It is 6AR, 10AR, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, negative trans 9. So any one of those that isn't tetrahydrocannabinol can be changed to make a different compound. So if I have 6AS, 10AS, Delta 9, tetrahydrocannabinol plus trans 9, that's actually a different species. And the plant in general, and this is the case for a lot of plants, they only make generally one isomer of a given natural product. And if you make it synthetically, then you end up most likely with a lot of natural or a lot of isomers that'll come out. Delta 10 is a constitutional isomer. If you are familiar with the structure of THC, there is a double bond in the secondary ring. And the location of that double bond is what determines if it is delta 8, delta 9, delta 10, delta 3, delta 4, delta 7, or delta 8. And then there's a subset among each of those because the conformation of that ring and the, the conformation of the methyl group associated with that ring and the connection to the aromatic ring all determine the shape as opposed, like whether it's a flat molecule, whether it has a bowl shape, and the direction that that bowl shape gives, whether forward or out of the face of the molecule, all affects how it binds to the cannabinoid receptor. And so this is, this is where it gets very confusing um, in the oh, Delta Oh, state. this is, this is where it gets very confusing. <laughs> so with Delta 8 and Delta 9, there are only two isomers of each of those. There's the plus and the negative version of each of those. And if you're starting from CBD, you can actually get racemic Delta 8 out, which is not ideal. What does if that mean? So if you get racemic, it means that you have a 50-50 mixture of isomers in there. And ultimately what that means is you only get 50% if only one of the isomers is active. And there are also other, there are, I mean, there are horror stories about this as well. So the, the story that they tell you in OCAN is about a drug called thalidomide. And in the UK, it was used as a prenatal vitamin. 
And if you have one isomer, it's really great prenatal vitamin. And as it turns out, if you have the other isomer, which it was sold as a racemic mixture, it creates horrible, horrible, horrible birth defects. And so specifically, these pregnant women were taking a racemic mixture of thalidomide in order to you know, help their pregnancy. But what they were doing was specifically poisoning the fetus. And that's not a concern for our D8 or our D9 because the other isomer is not toxic. They all have the same toxicity profiles. That's also one of the complaints you hear about D8 is no one knows the toxicity of it. And it's like, well, D8 has had toxicity profiles run on it because it's the primary impurity in D9. And D9 is a pharmaceutical drug and you can't get the D8 low enough to actually accommodate pharmaceutical guidelines. So in order to justify having some amount of D8 in there, you run a toxicity profile on that molecule and you say it's either the same or less toxic than this other molecule. And so therefore it's inconsequential to our formulation. So D8 has been extensively studied for safety. That's something that people like really gloss over. D10, on the other hand, almost nothing about safety. The closest thing to a safety profile was in the 82 paper with Matulam where he tests doves. So what he, what he, what they look for is they give these molecules to a set of birds and they look to see if the way that they behave changes. And if they do, then they determine that it's psychoactive. And so they got mixed results with their D10, most likely because the easiest way to make D10 is through a radical um, isomerization that also produces D8 and then all four isomers of D10. So I don't know enough about the pharmacology to know which of the D10 isomers is the psychoactive one. I know someone who is. That's where I received my sample many years ago from a guy in a country who has much, much more lenient uh, policies against things like that. And there is at least one isomer of Delta 10 that is psychoactive. However, there's been several, I mean, and this is all anecdotal stuff of people like posting. So it's not, not the um, gold standard of truth here that they didn't have a psychoactive experience. So if someone smokes a lot of weed every single day, they probably won't have a psychoactive experience, even if they eat the strongest edible they've ever eaten, right? They may get really high and a little uncomfortable, but they're probably not going to see visuals. They're probably not going to feel like the world is falling out from underneath them. So with Delta 10, just to kind of make sure that we clarify that point, if someone doesn't consume THC all the time, they might hallucinate? They might hallucinate, but that's assuming that you got the right isomer of D10, which there are not many effective ways to determine that. And I can guarantee you none of them are found in the places that are making D10 currently. Okay, so <laughs> if I buy a product that's D10, just ballpark percentage odds chance that I'm going to, I think your words, trip balls. That I have no good read on. However, I would say the chances of you getting a product that says that it's Delta 10 actually being any one of those isomers of Delta 10 exclusively is almost non-existent. All right. So let's let's take a couple steps back. Kellen, <laughs> chemistry, take me through this, right? For someone who doesn't really understand from the chemistry standpoint, DBD, THC, DA, where are we? Can you kind of build that picture like back up for us? From a chemistry standpoint, I mean... Yes. A lot of what Matthew was talking about was mainly organic chemistry. And so again, organic chemistry is a challenging subject in college. The one-on-one. Uh, the long story short, he was talking about different molecule structures and how they the structure changes, how they interact with the human body. So in layman's terms, it's a different structure with, if it has a different name. And that different structure 
If you think about how organic molecules typically interact with the human body, especially from a psychoactive perspective, typically binding with an enzyme. So you could think about it as a lock and key kind of situation. And so the molecules that have the right shape or the right key shape that fit into certain receptors in your body will cause that psychoactive behavior. And when it comes to D10, there's four different versions of D10 in terms of how the molecule is shaped in three dimensions, right? If you look at it on paper, it all looks the same in a 2D structure. But if you take it in the three, three dimensions, it folds and it moves in certain ways, which create different enantiomers. Is that right? Right? Enantiomers? Well, so there are different enantiomers and different diastereomers. If we're yeah, that, thank you. I always mess that part up. <laughs> I was like, uh, it's been a, a quick minute since we went over that. No, okay. But long story short, there are different shapes in, in three dimensions. And because they're different shapes, they either fit in that lock of an enzyme or they don't. And so that's where. Uh, we're referring to the, the psychoactive characteristics of these different uh, molecules as as it relates to cannabinoids. Is that does that make a little more sense for you, Brian? Yeah, that that makes a, <laughs> a ton more sense, right? And like, to continue on the the one on one path, right? Like I feel like a lot of times we have these conversations, and some people kind of come up with and ask questions like, "Hey, like, can you kind of expand more on that, or like more on this?" Means so I guess to continue on that conversation. Delta 8 was really popular here in New York, and I, I feel like in Texas also. Is Delta 10 popular now? And if not, is it because people haven't moved towards it? They're not aware of it? it it's too hard to make? Like, what's, what's that thought process? So from my research that I've done and like the more, because right, this is, this is a space where, where art meets science. Let's call it that. That's a friendly way to say it. And <laughs> so the way that the first modern reported D10 was found was with a crop of hemp that was near a wildfire and the flame retardant that was used to douse the area got drifted over onto the crop. And that crop then sat in the sun with this chemical on it. And that chemical happens to be a radical initiator whenever it's exposed to heavy UV light. And so they had 10% of some unknown material. They did a true um, investigatory study, sent it off and had it analyzed, determined the structure and found that that's what it was. And then through some work, they were able to do some more specific, like explicitly controlled radical chemistry to improve their yields and have a more controlled system. People are making it because they can, right? Like, oh, I have a new THC. You want it? Well, not necessarily, right? Like, that's a bold leap to make. I have a new THC. Okay. Well, what if this is one that just happens to cause seizures, right? Like, I mean, the difference between, you know, adrenaline and byproduct for it is, is a methyl group. And that single methyl group is the difference between you having a heart attack or having your blood pressure go so high that you start popping blood vessels in your eyes. Right? So like, just because it's like close to what I want, you know, close to what I want is a million miles away as far as I'm concerned. Is that story true though, that they put like a chemical on a plant? Like, is that how that really went down? That is how they reported it. That's like... That's incredible. It's pretty crazy to think that innovative science can happen like that. I mean, just by like chance or I mean, maybe that's that's how groundbreaking works. So then continue on that, Rao. The simplest question, can people make D10 from CBD? Yeah, so... That's not as trivial because you want to go from D9 to D10 and you can make D9 from CBD 
if you're really clever and really good at stopping it, the same chemistry that transforms CBD to D9 transforms D9 to D8. And in fact, it does it faster. And so the second that you make D9, it's more likely to make D8 than it is to do anything else. That same molecule would rather come back and make D8 than go to the next CBD molecule and make another molecule of D9. In general, there are some catalysts that can be used that don't behave that way. And stick around to Anubia to hear more about that later. Uh, is Benubia sponsoring this podcast? Because uh, we're clipping that part out if that's, the, if that's not the case. Because I, I guess I wonder, like, from a science standpoint and maybe chemistry standpoint, obviously, with CBD being like over saturating the market, obviously, people needed to look for an outlet. And B8 was the route they took. But scientifically, I'm assuming, just making it an assumption here, that D8 was easier to make than D10. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So D10 is an example of a molecule that you have to force into existence. It will never be your main product. It is not thermodynamically your preferred product. It's not even kinetically your preferred product. So even if you do it as fast as you can, you're still going to get a distribution of D9, D8, and D10 and XOTHC, uh, as well as all the other isomers I already listed. Because what you're doing is creating a radical cascade, and it can send that double bond and the THC anywhere around that, that ring. And so what that means is you always get a distribution of products. And until someone develops a specific catalyst, which not to say that that can't be done, there are chemists who spend their entire lives developing catalysts like that. And there is probably some radical initiator chemist that could be like, oh yeah, if I pull this mystery vial off my shelf and I put it in there at 10%, you'll get only D10 out. And I'm sure at some point that'll be revealed to the world. But as of right now, the chemistry that exists is not something I would ever want to do if I was trying to make a profit. Sure. Right. And obviously, to make a profit, you need to have someone buying these products. And right. consumer-wise, the educational level of understanding all these different cannabinoids is challenging. I mean, here we are having a conversation about it, trying to understand exactly how it works. So, Kellen, from an industry standpoint, how often do you hear Delta 10 spoken about? I didn't hear about it at all until maybe two months ago when I... I was on like kush.com's uh, marketplace and all of a sudden now you see companies starting to sell D10. I don't know if that was because of in the last two months there was a, I want to say maybe a, a slight crackdown by the Colorado Department of Health on Delta 8 manufacturing, at least in Colorado. That's not the case in, in other states, but I think Delta 10 could, could have potentially started hitting the marketplace because of some of the regulations associated with Delta 8. And some of those items that are being spoken about. So they could have then just been like, all right, well, Delta 10 is the next cannabinoid that's the easiest one to synthesize. And there's a lot of these big companies that um, are in that pseudo startup kind of small cap range as far as the, the size of them. And they're looking for as much revenue diversification as possible. And so they are giving resources to these R&D chemists to try to develop any, to take their massive stocks of CBD and turn them into usable molecules that actually sell. And it turns out that THC currently is selling a lot better than CBD just from a supply and demand perspective, especially in states that don't have legal cannabis markets. So to, to kind of piggyback off that, obviously Colorado made DA legal. Is it one of those where people just kind of shift then to D10 and they're like, well, D8's illegal. We can just do D10. 
And then the regulator's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just not how it works. Cat and mouse, right? Is is that exactly what we're playing, the cat and mouse game? (laughs) That's exactly. They can't write regulations fast enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? And this is all predicated on the assumption that G8 is even legal in the first place. Right. (laughs) Which, again, is an assumption because the DEA has a Schedule 1 number for D8. And you have to request quota to make it. I know because we request it every single year. <laughs> so the idea that it's not scheduled by the DEA's account is not true. I would be very hesitant to ship any D8 material across state lines. It's just got to be so insane for these regulators, right? Like they, they work super hard, especially for these legislations. They're like, hey, like we finally got it done. D8's done, right? And then all of a sudden... You know, they get a text message and it's like, well, D10's popping up and they're like, what? What the hell is this? And like, so how, like, how do we align? It seems like we're moving in like three different speeds, right? We've got like the consumers who are trailing behind everything. We've got the industry who's like out in front trying to do everything they can in order to figure out like where's profitability. And then we've got like the regulators and the legislation kind of like somewhere in between the two different parties trying to figure out like what's safe, what's legal, what's not. And how to kind of enforce these things. So, Matt, how does that work? Well, so one, we reconcile that by stopping electing people to legislate things they know nothing about. That would be a good first step, I think. Sure. Um, <laughs> I don't know a single person who represents me who has a science degree, but there has been tons of legislation passed every single year that would be that I, as a scientist, look at and cringe at the way that they phrase things. You go back to the 1984 Analogs Act, they have addressed this on how to regulate and monitor this, right? Delta 10 THC might, may or may not be an analog of Delta 9 THC and Delta 8 THC, seeing as they're all tetrahydrocannabinol, the same mass and same function and property relationships, they are analogs, according to the legislation that definitely says that they're illegal, right? So in, in the regulation, they specifically call out function, right? So that's why synthetic spice and all of those, like K2, all of those things were so easily passed under the Analogs Act is because they serve the purpose of getting you high. And so if it serves the purpose of getting you high, it falls under the Analogs Act. Therefore, D8 and D10 should all also fall under the Analogs Act. Now, is the DEA going to enforce that? No, they're scared to because the legislature at any time could pass full legalization, at which case the DEA has no concern about it at all. And it's 100% FDA. FDA doesn't want to say anything because it's not a drug yet. Well, it is a drug. THC is a drug. CBD is a drug. So we can't just say it's over-the-counter available. They're already prescription drugs. So unless there's a bunch of work done to prove that it's safe for over-the-counter sell, then the FDA is also going to be like, oh, yeah, we can't do that. And they're just going to stand there silently until legislation is forced upon them because they don't want to be the party that's guilty for making an action that's incorrect. Yeah. And so until there's actual legislation... And we're going to be at an impasse. So we still request allotment for our D9 and our D8. We request allotment for CBN, for our impurity profile, right? Like, and CBN is not even really psychoactive. I mean, you could argue that if you did enough, you did, but like... How much of it you need to be psychoactive? I don't know. I've never smoked enough hash to get high. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that I've had a CBN bait that really helped with back pain more so than CBD or THC alone ever did interestingly enough, but I did not feel high at all. So, so I'll go to you, Callum. Is this a case of same, same, but different? Um, no, I mean, it is interesting to think that that's probably why it's still the wild, wild west though. Right. 
is because the uh, DEA and the FDA are kind of kind of have their hands tied, you know, and even like one of those like Mexican standoffs, right? I mean, totally, yeah. where, like they're all just like this. Yeah. And I'd like to think everyone's wearing a cowboy hat and like cowboy boots and we're in, in an old Western town. You know what I mean? It's like, an just, like that, the wild, that, wild West. <laughs> the Anchorman season two where they're all just like, they're just like all standing around staring at each other. And, like we're just going <laughs> to throw it down. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on. And so, I mean, I was at uh, a conference five years ago in California cannabis conference, and there was some FDA individuals at that conference. And they said that they were having focus groups about how to deal with this five years ago. Right. And so fast forward five years and it's still federally illegal. So it's going to have to come from some sort of bill that's passed through the Senate and the House before the FDA or the DEA does anything. And I mean, the DEA isn't even really isn't even going after after cannabis that heavily at all. You know what I mean? Like they don't have the funding to. Right. That's from my understanding. Their internal directive is still the opioid epidemic, especially last year, as it should be. Right. Like agreed. This should not be a DEA issue. It should be an FDA issue because one, at the bare minimum, you're going to see at least two isomers of, of D10 THC. And again, there's no safety studies on D10 at all for any of the isomers. So until that comes out, I mean, there are plenty of things that you can go get and have a non-neurotypical experience after huffing them. Right? So that doesn't make them safe. <laughs> Just the fact that it gets you high doesn't mean that it's a good thing to put in your body. But, you know, like another thing about the DA with its safety in regards to relative to these two is if you look up uh, Marcus Rogan, that his company last year or earlier this year put out a paper that showed that if you vape or if you smoke cannabis, then most of the D9 converts to DA. That's the thermodynamic pathway. It wants to be DA. And so, in fact, there's probably more safety studies on D8, and we just didn't know it. That's pretty interesting. So let's kind of dive into some of the, the research that I did on the internet. And, and to describe the research, <laughs> I searched Delta 10 and wanted to see kind of what came up because I hadn't really learned too much about it. So I wanted to kind of see. So one of the quotes that I saw said that Delta 10 has the potential to appeal to a mass audience that's looking for psychoactive benefits without the potential downsides caused by Delta 9 THC. D10 could be insanely popular because it can offer euphoria and increased focus without paranoia and anxiety. That's 100% speculation. Of course it's speculation, <laughs> but like, what's the thought process behind that? It's good marketing. That's the thought yeah. process behind it. Uh, someone smoked it and didn't have an anxiogenic response. And so, because okay. maybe they got the wrong isomer and it wasn't psychoactive, yeah. like Matt said earlier in the episode, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I smoked it. It was good. Yeah. I did and it until, after I smoked my weed. Like, I was totally relaxed. Like, until studies are done <laughs> at a university or a private company funds the actual studies and makes ICH compliant, true single isomer D10. Right. I don't, I don't buy it. Right. Uh, like, we don't know how the study was. Sure. And I wasn't looking for like, a, I, obviously coming to two scientists about this is pretty <laughs> speculative, but I was looking for more about like the concept on how this person without reading the article, which of course neither of you did, how they could try <laughs> to associate a large audience to saying that it, it can increase focus without the paranoia and the anxiety. That's the part that intrigued me is because he made two kind of bold claims. And I know that from this industry, we're not supposed to make any of those type of claims, right? Right. So, heavily clinical claims. Right. So that to me is seems pretty bold. And considering what he said, 
Delta 10 has the chance to be insanely popular because it offers this euphoric feeling and increased focus, which seems to be pretty subjective, right? Obviously, we could all take the same product and feel very different. And also without the paranoid anxiety, on the same part, I'm not sure about the two of you, how many times you've consumed cannabinoids and been anxious or paranoia. So I guess starting there, how? How does that whole thing work? By smoking weed every day and having a better baseline of THCs in your system, you prevent yourself from being overwhelmed with any given experience. Apart from that, I find it hard to believe that you could simultaneously increase focus and reduce anxiety as those two generally coincide with each other. Right. It's the whole problem with Adderall, right? Is like people take Adderall and they get really productive and they get all their shit done. But then at the end of the day, they're just like, everything's wrong with my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had a buddy in college that had to start by cleaning his room. Otherwise, he'd spend the entire time on Adderall cleaning his room. So he, his, his kind of steps forward were, I'm going to clean my room first, and then take the Adderall to, to help the folks. But I think that's a really good point. And Kellen, from your standpoint, like, is that something where, where this person's making these claims about the euphoric and the, the locking in of the focus? Can cannabinoids help with increased focus? Does that person have a DR period in front of their name? Did you I, check the author's name? Oh, that's a good... And it, and it needs to be an MD instead of uh, another random PhD situation. It, it's, because it's like what, at the end I, of the day, all of those claims are medical claims, right? Sure. And like I'm not a doctor. I couldn't tell you the exact biochemical situation that goes on internally for most humans when they do experience anxiety. And if we're going to talk about a molecule preventing anxiety, which is a biochemical reaction to the external environment that you're in, then we should probably be referencing exactly what that mode of reactions that are cascading through the human body that that molecule is causing that either prevent or facilitate, either upregulate or downregulate that exact chemical environment that is you experiencing anxiety, right? Increased heart rate, these other things. So, I mean, (laughs) at the end of the day, that's if you're going to make claims like that, they need to be vetted. And is there a reference to some primary literature that was accomplished at a hospital, like from a clinical trial perspective? You know what I mean? Like, this is how like you need to try to vet these kind of claims when it comes to molecules that have never been studied from a clinical perspective. You know what I mean? So like that's 100%. And and that makes a ton of sense too. And right to continue on that path, right? Like I read this article and I was excited because the way he described the cannabinoids feelings is everything that I would look for in experience. But of course, as we know, very misleading way and maybe some marketing fluff. I'll admit. So you're saying that after reading it, you would buy the product. Dude, my first question was, <laughs> I'm going to ask Matt where I can buy it. Let me read you some of the, the euphoric feelings. <laughs> Alertness, focus, energy, boost of creativity. Like, I mean, these are Do all I get like, taller too? These are all like the limitless like feelings that, that get like locked in. And I mean, from a, um, an initial marketing standpoint, I guess to back up the question is, don't terpenes play a, a, a really vital role in this sort of combination effect that are not being described at all in this process? Or am I completely off there? That is complicated because they help with absorption of molecules, right? Like not just cannabinoids, terpenes are in, like they assist in helping absorb small nutrients, micronutrients that you have in your food and things like that. There's only one, beta-caryophylline actually binds to the CD1 receptor. And so it plays a role in that as well. But so like the example being Syndros, our THC drug 
It, it is just THC. It has strawberry flavor and vitamin E is a oxidative protectant, antioxidant. And it is incredibly effective at stimulating appetite and easing any sort of neuropathic pain. And there are no terpenes in there. So it still functions as it's supposed to. Not to say that the terpenes and the entourage effect aren't something that's really valuable and needs to be investigated more because I, I do believe that they play a role, right? I discussed that whenever we're talking about ultra pure D9, right? Like the stuff that you get out of a plant, you're going to isolate it and get it up to 95%. Whereas if you do it synthetically, you're going to have 99 plus. And that 5% of other little minor cannabinoids seems to play a huge role in whether or not someone has an anxiogenic effect from it and whether or not they have a really anxious high. So whenever people overdo it on their syndromes because they're like, oh, I got some THC and they, you know, they'd be like, what's 50 milligrams? That doesn't sound like very much. And it's five, it's 10 times their normal dose. And so, yeah, and it's pure THC. They don't have anything that attenuates how it affects that CB1 receptor. I can see how that might play a role, but there's a lot of conditional statements in there because it's all speculative and there are not pharmacokinetic studies that prove it to be true. And until then, all of this and all of these weird mixtures that are being produced, I would want the. I, you can't make a claim on that mixture, right? Because the mixture may have an effect that any single isomer doesn't, which is why there are clinical trials for things that are 50% CBD and 50% THC and 75% CBD and 25% THC. Right? So like these ratios, they, they play some sort of role because they affect the receptor and the protein in different ways. So THC binds in the CB1 receptor, but CBD is what's called an allosteric modulator. And so it actually, so if, if this is the receptor, CBD comes in and it sits on top and it makes it smaller. And that kicks out your natural anandamide that normally sits in the CB1 receptor. It also kicks out THC if it's in there. If you have a whole lot more THC, then it kind of like wobbles in and out, wobbles in and out. And so there's all sorts of different things that can be attenuated with these different mixtures. So to say that a terpene or another isomer doesn't have an effect would be wrong. However, these guys making these claims with D10 are just blowing smoke. Is it fair to wonder if like the science aspect will never be able to catch up to all the different combinations and, and products out there? I mean, it seems like the science is behind. Obviously, we need to take some time. We need some research. We need some funding. But like, is it fair to wonder like how the two of them will kind of get on the same timeline? There are types of studies that can be done. And so there's all sorts of work that's being done to improve that, not for cannabinoids, but for pharmaceuticals in general, right? So drug discovery can take a long time in doing a structured reactivity analysis because so a rule I was taught is nature doesn't make stuff for us, right? We find stuff in nature that has a use, but that's not to say we can't take that and make it better. THC is really good at a lot of things. And CBD is really good at a lot of things. That's not to say there isn't some designer molecule that we can make, that would be better. So like a simpler example, do you use traditional motor oil or synthetic? Right? Well, I use yeah. synthetic. You know, then most, I don't think a car has been using traditional motor oil since 2005, 2004, something like that, whenever they switched off to synthetic. And we didn't switch to synthetic because it was worse. We did it because we specifically designed the properties we wanted in that molecule and then bulked it up and, and produced that. So that way it runs exactly how we want it. That's why you can run your car to 10,000 miles now and you don't blow a cylinder gasket. And D10, maybe D10 is it. Maybe the R isomer of D10 is the best cannabinoid ever and it cures everything. And that might be the case. But until we actually see ultimately pure controlled studies of that molecule, it's all smoke. All right. So then let's kind of dive farther in. 
when? When? I think once it's legal. Once cannabis becomes legal, I think that you'll get regulations. And then now you have federal regula- regulatory bodies that are A, going to regulate the sale. So now these companies that are sitting on inventories of CBD, there will be a huge penalty for even exploring the manufacturing of, say, Delta 3 or the next cannabinoid, right? And so then there's no financial benefit to the investment. There's only going to be a huge detriment. And so then at that point, the whole, the entire cannabinoid industry will be regulated on a federal level and you'll see everything change because you won't have gas stations selling Delta 10 beverages if it's not legal because they will lose their license and go to jail, right? Because they're breaking the law at that point. Right now, it's so gray that no one knows what the law really is. And if you have a really good lawyer, you're going to potentially be able to, to get your way out of it because of how the law is written at this point. And so that's, that's my two cents on how all of these, how the, because this, yeah, the science won't catch up. It's going to be regular regulations that's going to dictate what is generally available to the, to the mass markets. Right. So looking at how they react as well. Is, oh, sorry, uh, looping back around, there are like places like Merck and Pfizer, some major drug companies that do structure reactivity analysis, look at like growing an organ in a, in a petri dish, right? And how does it respond to that organ? What does it do to a liver? What does it do to a kidney? Look at the different toxicity, common toxicity routes and say, oh, it doesn't kill a liver. That's a good sign, right? Because, you know, you may have this thing that works tremendously in rats and then you put it in a person and they just die. Right, like yeah, you eat chocolate every single day, but if your dog gets into your dark chocolate, then he could just die or a grape, right? Like just these common things that are everywhere and they don't have any effect on a smaller or different creature. And because of one mutation in one enzyme that humans have that no one else does, it could create just traumatic cascade events. And that's the type of thing that has to be avoided, which is why things are tested on animals generally before they go into human trials. Last time we spoke about D8, we, we talked about the challenges of making a stable product. Does D10 have that same issue? So anyone who has trouble making a stable D8 product, you should definitely not buy. Because D8 is in... How do you know that though? Like no one is writing on a label, I don't make a stable D8 product, buy my product. Well, discoloration, things, that, things like that. But when you buy a product, you don't inspect the inside of the package. You just buy the package, correct? Yeah. So I don't. I wouldn't buy D eight for that reason. <laughs> it's not regulated. There's like, a lot of things not regulated too that people just kind of take for granted. I this is like the worst thing I hear is like, oh, I bought it on the internet, like it's fine, and it's like that's a really troubling statement that'll probably get you in trouble in like a lot of different areas. Specifically, if you're consuming products you buy off the internet and just take for granted. Well, so like things like the colorless D8 that people try to sell. D8 is not colorless. The molecule itself absorbs a certain spectrum of light that gives it a yellow tint. The purest of pure D8s, and I'm talking 99.99, is yellow. It's very, very pale, but it is not colorless. And so things like that, like in vape cartridges, more what I'd reference it with, the, with the color being an issue. If, you're, if it discolors as you're smoking it out of a vape cartridge, still not D8. D8 doesn't do that. What about edible? So actually, an edible is like a little bit less terrifying because you you eat random stuff all the time and like your food has a bunch of little micro things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, we probably, <laughs> we've, we've done this with Kellen before. It's not a great subject. It ends up being where 
I remove five or six different foods off my, my <laughs> consumption list every time we do you it. Don't, you don't like the acceptable number of cockroach legs in your chocolate? No, I think this is the part of it where like, I would like to cut this out. And I think maybe we just remove that part. <laughs> it's beans? Do you, like beans? you want to hear about what's in beans? I mean, the beans is not the worst part. It's like the tomato aspect, the cilantro, all the things that I really enjoy that have just been ruined for me. Don't read any FDA guidance on food then. <laughs> no, for sure not. So then let's kind of simplify the whole topic, right? There's like this educational thing that we always try to go back to and try to help our listeners make better educated decisions. We talk about the complexity of walking to dispensary and being overwhelmed with the sheer amount of products. One could argue that if D8 gets pushed pretty aggressively to being illegal, naturally, some of these facilities will look to push for D10 products, which become increasingly more popular. Should you provide hesitancy? Or should, we, should we encourage our listeners to maybe hesitate before buying T10 products? What do you think about that? I absolutely would. The chemistry that they're using is, is similar to buying CBN from an unknown source on the market. There are tons of ways to make it. And there's only about one way that I would want to make a version that I consumed. And the chances of them using that method are pretty low because I know that they're not currently published. They're not published and there's not any patent literature. So that's type of chemistry that you would have to be an organic chemist and know a lot of background to just to just have that knowledge. Most of these people making these molecules do not, in my you, experience with, this, with the industry. You want to add into that? I mean, and I wouldn't even say like just any old random organic chemist, right? Like organic chemistry, there is a fine line between someone who has past organic chemistry and someone who's like a wizard at organic chemistry. And organic chemistry is hard, right? We started off by saying like it's the class with the highest DWF rate in any college at every college across the entire globe, right? Like there's a reason it's so challenging. I mean, you are literally making new molecules that the environment hasn't made yet, right? Like if you can put that into perspective, it's, it's insane. Right. And so there's a lot of people just mixing things together, like wizards back in the day. And it's a lot of like potions right now, because I mean, I'm going to go back to the reference of us all wearing cowboy hats, standing around in an old Western town, right? Like (laughs) the guy that has the new elixir that could cure everything. And if you've seen some of the the marketing from like the early 1900s about like the elixirs that could cure your back pain and make you grow and you're smarter and all these things that are now illegal to claim, like we're kind of right back in that same little gray area, right? (laughs) One of the the best ones I found was in... It was an empty bottle in one of my grad school labs, which was a tincture in chloroform made with heroin and, and cannabis extract, as well as like 28 ounces of pure alcohol. Oh, hold on. I thought you out. What are you using that for? <laughs> I don't know. It was marketed to cure everything on the bottle, right? It was like, cures headaches. Back little, pain, little bit of this, pain. little bit of this. <laughs> I'm like, you're drinking chloroform. It's also going to cure your life, I guess. <laughs> I mean, from a marketing standpoint, if they don't start making progressive moves forward with kind of getting states online faster and kind of clarifying what is legal and what's not, I think Delta 10 is going to get popular, especially when people start marketing it around alertness, focus, energy, creativity. It doesn't have to actually do that. But if they can push that and people can conceptualize that concept and they're like, well, it's a better version of Adderall, you're going to have such mass appeal that it's going to just be overwhelming. And, and that's the kind of scary part too, is that like, like we were saying before, it's like there's the three different speeds that are moving, the customers, the, the industry, and like then the regulators. So I just say, well, middle. And from a marketing standpoint, like it's hard not to get excited when you read that, but also 
talking with you guys gives me so much more pause when being open to considering those products, just understanding the science behind it. Well, so one of the one of the aspects that is is overlooked is is not the toxicity of any given cannabinoid because D10 may be completely inert. It may or maybe it's completely psychoactive and has no toxicity. But what about the other five percent of stuff that's in there? The other three percent, two percent, even if it's one percent. If you take it every day, right? That's, there's a reason that that we have these guidelines that limit it to like a purity level of no impurity being more than 0.1% based off the assumption that you're not going to have more than a gram a day, which would be, which would be right at 10, 10 milligrams of material, right? So you're talking about trying to stop people from taking 10 milligrams of material and something that they may be smoking, like, especially like the, 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 the flower with D8 on it, right? If you're smoking that every day, if you're smoking joints of that every day and you're chronic, then that's something that's in there at 10 milligrams may end up being a lot if it accumulates or if it's carcinogenic or if it's teratogenic, right? Like there are any number of things that are incredibly potent at really low levels whenever it's treated chronically. And so that's the reason that your pharmaceuticals are have to, right? I'm not going to say that the price of pharmaceuticals represents their value. That's the reason pharmaceuticals are expensive is because of the documentation and the purification and all the work that goes in to prove that I'm not giving you anything other than what I tell you I'm giving. That makes a ton of sense. So we've got two predictions this time. It's 2023. It's not too far from now. Is Delta 10 wildly popular? Depends on what happens with D8, I guess. And with full legalization. I mean, I think if people could just go buy some bud, they would go buy some bud. Agreed. But it's 2023. And I'm looking for, is D10 popular? And when I when just to give a framework of reference of what popular means, similar to the type of buzz that D8 has kind of given the space. Probably. I mean, right? Like people seem to really like the novelty of, of, of the new thing. They're like, give me some CBC. CBC is not even psychoactive. And it may have anti-inflammatory properties, but there's only like one brief study that shows that it that it might. And no so, one reads that study. They just like to hear a new cannabinoid and want exactly. to sound cooler to their friends. So it's just insert new cannabinoid and say, give me that. Kellen, your thoughts? No, no, I don't think so. I think that by 2023, you're going to see continue to see this cascade of states legalizing adult use, right? Or do you mean that by 2023, there will be another one in front of D10 that's more popular? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I go back to the fact that I think the popularity in D8 is strictly driven by the fact that people want to get high and Delta gets you high and you can sell it legally in states that weed's not legal, right? And I think that I go back to the point where people could just smoke bud, like you said, Matt, like they would just smoke bud, right? <laughs> and so I think by 2023, there's going to be a massive, I think the market's only going to continue to grow. I don't think we're going to slow down as far as adult use states coming online. I think it's probably only going to speed up potentially. And so by 2023, I think that more than 80% of adult consumers that are looking for this kind of stuff will have access to flour, right? I mean, that's my that's my guess. So that's what I'm going with. Does B10 have, let's say, a place in that no. world you just described? No, I don't well, think so. I, I think it could. Yeah, me too. If any of these marketing claims are true. Right. If marketing <laughs> okay. claims are true, then it has a value. As of right now, they're not clinical claims, they're marketing claims. And 
they're also on a material that is mildly terrifying and concept to me to try to consume. Sure. And I'm not saying any of us should be the, the guinea pigs in pushing <laughs> the D10. But in the same aspect, if people could find a way to boost creativity, focus, alertness. They're all looking for additional outlets and ways to improve their efforts. At least some people are. That's why people take shit on Adderall in college. Maybe not for all the same reasons we described there. Maybe for personal reasons. But there's reasons why that that's really popular in college. And if people can take a more natural product to kind of meet those needs, I think it works. And obviously, there's a ton of signs that needs to go down. The marketing claims obviously need to be validated. But I think if there is a product that can kind of suit that combination of a more focused, less paranoid feel, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, I think designer cannabinoids are a hundred percent a field that's going to blow up. The same with the, with psychedelics and indigents, right? Like, there's been a moratorium on them for forty years, and then as it turns out, the second you make them clinically available, they have a huge clinical value, right? But again, nature does not make stuff for us. We just happen to find shit that nature made, and we're like, "Oh, this is cool. It gets me high." And as it turns out, if I add a fluorine group right here, I never process it, and I can be high for the next six months. That's a little too long for me. All right, real prediction time. Last time you were on, Matt, we teased out. We were talking about Delta 8, which if you're listening to this podcast, go back and listen to Matt's. He's currently the most popular episode. And I'm fearful that by the time this gets released, he won't be number one. And Matt really wants to be number one. <laughs> we, teased, we talked about D8. We dove really deep into it. Today, we're talking about Delta 10. Matt, what's the next cannabinoid? that is going to be more forward-thinking approach that some haven't really thought about that should be at least on the radar? So one of the things that you'll find is the CBDV and THCV markets. So these are the ones where the active part of the molecule is more or less the same, and it has a different length tail. So if you look at the molecule, it has a five-membered tail. Um, you also can get a a three-membered tail and a seven-membered tail, also the one-membered and a four out of a crude extract. Those are the most common ones. The odd numbers are way, way more common. But the C3 is in clinicals as CBDB, and compared to CBD, it's essentially identical. Um, THCV will probably meet the same thing, and they're hesitant to schedule THCV because it has a different mass, even though it has a very, very similar effect. Different mass, different molecular formula, well, now we move further away from the Analogs Act and they're very hesitant to make any claims about something that wasn't really talked about prior to CBD being a big thing and hemp being a big thing. And now it's all hemp-derived, that it's CBDV and THCV. So they're, they're very hesitant to move against that. Well, the C7 actually tends to be significantly on the order of 1,000 times to 5,000 times more potent than the C7 molecule. It occurs like, 0.2% relative to the, or yeah, 0.2% relative to the C5 in any given THC plant. So not something that you can really isolate your way to, but synthetically can be made very, very easily, like the exact same way that we make our D9 and all of that, our C5. And that's something where if nothing else, you could give one one thousandth the dose and have the same clinical effect. And so I think that the way that we're going is People want a natural one. Bear in mind, that's 114 different molecules that you can call more than that in, in the plant or from the plant. So once people get less averse to the idea of synthetic, the term synthetic, then I think that that'll be the way to go. Because again, nature doesn't make things for us. So 
there's three modifications you can make to a THC molecule that basically will give you an irreversible high. Of course, most people don't want that, but if the intent is to make a molecule that gets you high, then we're not going to randomly find the best one. If you want to find the random best one, heroin already exists. And, and also, the Delta 10, the Delta 8. <laughs> Is that going to be our, our teaser clip? Am I just going to take that one section? The heroin, do <laughs> that so up. That'll be a real good teaser. You're the same synthetic steps away with D8 and D10, the same number of steps away from a natural product as you are with heroin from morphine. And the same with uh, THCO, which we didn't even talk about today. I don't even know what that is. What? (laughs) THCO acetate. It's THC acetate where... Oh, yeah. That's the water-soluble one. No, it's the the only grease-soluble one. Oh. All right. So so what I'm hearing from you (laughs) is the next time you come on, you want to talk about THCO? I don't know that there's that much to talk about other than um, it's literally the same modification that goes from, from morphine to heroin. Well, I'm pretty sure I can find at least one article to bring up to really upset the scientists in the room. So I'm sure we can find something <laughs> to talk about. Kellen, your cannabinoid of choice for the future that will be more popular. And I saw you doing a little research, so I'm expecting a good one. You want I doing a little research? No. Um, I think THCV, potentially. I've heard a lot about THCV, a lot of the anecdotal evidence from individuals who have consumed it say it's not as and this goes in line with what matt was saying that it's not as potent so it's a lot easier to consume throughout the day it's harder to overdo it exactly and so i think because of that if you're looking at like a potential business model if you have a product that you're selling that they're gonna consume more of throughout the entire day then that equates to making more money in my opinion Right. Or just like if you're doing a one to one ratio, I understand there's a lot more variables involved in in that assumption. Right. But because of that effect, I think that it could potentially be a lot more popular when smoking lounges get mixed with bars. You have people consuming alcohol and the spins are a real thing. We all went to, well, a lot of us went to college and understand how that whole thing affects a lot of individuals. Right. Are you you pointing to one of us? I I was not pointing to any, but didn't (laughs) go to college. We all went to college. Apologize for the technical issues as my internet dropped. We appreciate you listening and we'll release this episode with video on YouTube as well. Let us know if you want us to keep dropping the video recordings. Thanks again for the support. See you next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.